Well, we, are, we have been going through the book of Romans for over two years now. Seriously. And, and we've come to this final section that we're calling Spain or Bust. Um, so we will be closing Romans next week. Um, in this final section, we've had Kevin and Eric kind of um, talking to us about how Paul has re-emphasized or, you know, is emphasizing the Great Commission that was given by Christ. And that, that is that we should go, that we must go, um, why we should go, and I'm kind of going to talk about how we should go. Um, so Nancy and I, Nancy and I watch a quirky little show called The Middle. And I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it is a quirky show. And we jokingly say that their marriage is an exaggeration of our marriage. And, and Mike, the dad, is a lot like me when it comes to giving gifts. He either has no interest in buying his wife a gift, or at the very last second, in a panic, will run to like a gas station or a drugstore and grab anything just to hand it to her for her birthday or anniversary or Mother's Day. And that is me. My wife, on the other hand, is a very gift-oriented person. She shops for people when we're not shopping for people. We'll be in a store and she'll go, this look at this, this is perfect for so-and-so. And she'll start putting it in the basket. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, why don't we just tell them it's here? <laughs> so, but being associated with this wonderfully generous person, people have a warped sense of how generous I may be when it comes to giving gifts because she puts my name on virtually everything that she gives away. So if you have received a gift from us, you are welcome. <laughs> but this isn't unusual. I mean, you know, many people get the credit, you know, or are highlighted um, for doing something, but they've done it on the shoulders of others. You know, and I'm not kind of going Obama here, I know. But, but what I'm trying to say is this. You know, like we look at Tom Brady. Oh my gosh, Tom Brady, although I hate the New England Patriots, just get that out of the way. Confess, confess my sin. Um, you know, Tom Brady, we, look, we would all look and just go, he is one of the greatest quarterbacks of our era. I mean, without question, one of the greatest quarterbacks of our era. He's won four Super Bowls. He's won MVPs. But he didn't do it alone, even though he pretty much gets most of the credit. I mean, he's done it with a strong defense, and he's done it with a kicker named Adam Vinatieri, who won two of those Super Bowls in the last seconds of the game, and they weren't ordinary field goals. They were 40-some-yard field goals, one of them 48 yards, which is huge, with zero seconds left on the clock. And he kicks a 48-yard field goal. They win the game. And everybody goes, Tom Brady, the MVP. If he would have missed that, they would have lost the game. So what do they do with Adam Vinatieri a couple of years later, which he is legendary? They trade him to the Indianapolis Colts, who then won a Super Bowl. And who then, they gave the MVP to quarterback Peyton Manning. 
When we think about who nailed Al Capone, you know, our minds race to Elliot Ness and the movie The Untouchables. Elliot Ness. But really, you know, Al Capone was arrested numerous times for murder, racketeering, and, you know, all these things. And he had so many people in his pocket, he walked away free every time. There was a little-known guy named Frank Wilson, and he was an IRS investigator. And he was asked to investigate Al Capone, who was later then arrested and brought to trial for tax evasion. Murder couldn't get him. Let's get him on taxes. So, you know... In his three-year investigation of Al Capone, it was so secret, he couldn't, Wilson couldn't even share it with his wife. So, you know, and I'm not taking anything away from Elliot Ness, but, you know, when we think about it, we don't think of Wilson, we think of Elliot Ness. And another figure in history that is, that is remarkably important, Milk. You know, when you think about it, we think of the big three. Snap, crackle, pop. <laughs> but you know what? Rice Krispies would just be a pile of dried rice if it wasn't for milk. Milk brings out the harmonious cacophony of sonic brilliance that just screams breakfast. The church, obviously I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> The church was also built through unassuming and often overlooked faithful servants. So let us pray. Oh, Lord, it is the purpose of the church that you have purposed the church to, to make disciples, to preach the gospel. And each of us believers has a job to do and a part to play in that purpose and command. So let us take action and be the church through obedience to you. So if you guys want to take a moment and turn it to um, Romans chapter 16, we're going to go through verses 1 through 20. Now, when I say the church was built on overlooked people, they are not overlooked by the people that they have served with, nor by God. But just to point out how overlooked they are, I would almost guarantee that each one of you, as we read this passage when you've come to this passage on your own, has skipped the first 16 verses to get to the good stuff. Because these are people. These are people's names that are unfamiliar, that are hard to pronounce. And it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, let's get down to what, you know. But Paul wants us to take a moment and recognize these people that have been so valuable in the process of the ministry that God has called them to. You know, Paul's ministry grew because of faithful servants. You know, and we here at Olive Branch, and think about this for a minute, we are continuing the ministry that Paul was called to. You know, just think about that because we're still trying to reach the Gentiles, those that don't know Christ, and, and bring the gospel and disciple them and baptize them. You know, we have the same calling as Paul and the apostles. We are fellow workers with Paul. We serve the same unchanging God as Paul. So he starts in verse 1, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. 
and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And Phoebe was a patron, you know, and basically it, it meant that she was a financial supporter of many, including Paul, you know. And, and each one of us are doing the same thing, you know, with our tithes and with our offerings. You know, we are supporting ministries that are, that are helping hurting people, that are bringing the gospel to people, that are caring for people, that are supporting missionaries that we've just sent out a couple of years ago, and they're not coming back for years. You know, we are, like Phoebe, supporters, financial supporters. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the, ch- the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are all known to the apostles, and they were in Christ even before me. Greet Ampilitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved son Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Narcissus, that's kind of a weird one. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard for you. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncatris, Plague and Hermes. This is why we skip over these, by the way. Petrovus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and her sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet them Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, outside of Priscilla and Aquila, we probably have not heard of these names before, you know. But that doesn't mean that they weren't vitally important to the work that God was doing, you know, to spread the gospel, to build churches so people could learn and grow in their faith. You know, and and that's just a reminder Don't confuse prominence with significance. You know, some are more prominent. When we think of the early church, we really just focus on the apostles and the work they did. But it is incredible how many people it takes. And here's just a few. They're all significant. And so we should celebrate all of those who build the church. Priscilla and Aquila mentored Apollos. They were versed in scriptures. They understood the scriptures. They trained disciples. You know, they were house church leaders. Apollos takes a moment to thank Mary and Persis, who are women and describes them as hard workers. I didn't necessarily hear him say that about the men. Just saying, just reading the scriptures here, people. You know, but Paul thanks them. We admire and we respect the, the work of the apostles. And we remember them. But if it weren't for all those who gave so much of themselves, supporting them, working alongside them, that, that what they accomplished, what they were able to accomplish would have been greatly diminished. And I get it. It's God that builds the church and it's the Holy Spirit that, 
you know. But yeah, but he has also chosen to work through his prized creation, mankind. He has chosen to work through man and said, you know, when he created the world, I, I give it to you. To rule, to steward. He has chosen to work through his people. You know, um, we give the apostles the credit and sometimes we overlook the faithful servants. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, people seek out undue credit or dismiss the contributions. What I'm saying is when we think of the early church, we think of the prominent ones. And we overlook the significant ones. You know, they all held various roles. And, and just to kind of throw this out there, you know, here are some names of people that many of you are unaware of. Maybe you've never got the chance to meet them. Maybe you've never even heard their names before. <clears throat> but I just want to throw out a couple. Ike Riddle, you know. Ike Riddle was the founding pastor of Olive Branch, and he turned a 20-person Bible study in his house into a thriving church called Olive Branch. Amen. Amen. And you know what? He was one of the most hospitable, one of the most kind and loving people you could ever meet. You never left without a hug. And I think that legacy continues today because I hear all the time what a gracious congregation we have, what a welcoming congregation we have, not only to, you know, new guests that are coming into the door, but to one another. And I think that that is a legacy that was left behind by someone that many of you don't know. Roger and Karen Jones. They were here for years, and they were so instrumental um, to the growth and the development you know, of our youth group, but also to our pastor, Greg Harris, you know, in mentoring him, helping shape, you know, helping shape this snot-nosed little kid that was going through seminary and leading our youth group. And Jim and Kim Felix, who are here, um, you know, had a vision for small groups and got small groups started at our church. And now we have like three to 400 people meeting every week, ministering to one another, caring for one another in small group. And it's because of Jim and Kim Felix getting it started. You know, and I can go on and on and on, but you get the point. What you see going on here on campus on Sundays or throughout the week is done through the faithfulness, the hard work, the sacrifice, and the willingness of everyday people. Or as Paul might call them, faithful, hardworking saints. It takes many people to do the work. And I want to encourage you guys in two ways. One, thank those that are diligently working and serving in the ministries at Olive Branch. You know, let them know how much you appreciate it. Go up to that child ministry teacher or aide and, 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 and thank them, but, but share stories of how your children are being changed, you know, um, learning more to love God and know God and, and be excited about God. And thank your small group leaders. Thank your youth leaders. Thank the prayer team, the school staff, the school who is trying to shape a Christian worldview in young children today. You know, thank the greeters. Look for the overlooked, and he prays upon them. 
as Paul would say, greet them with a holy kiss. Because without them, seriously, not much would be going on around here. And just to point that out, and don't be humble. If you are serving on a regular basis in a ministry here at Olive Branch, stand up. You know? Thank you. And I'm telling you, it looks like a lot of people, and you know, through each service, it's probably half of the people in the room, and you go, wow, there's a lot of people. You're needed. <laughs> You're needed. It may seem like there's a lot of people, but there are a lot more that we need help with. Um, so, number two. If you're not yet one of those saints that is serving, jump in. We need you. We have many, many positions that need to be filled. Um, you know, the mission of Olive Branch needs you. The, the ministry leaders need you. And we're doing a ministry fair today. And there's an insert in your bulletin. Pull it out. Take a look. Get, you know, we just kind of tried to summarize some of the some of the ministries that we need help in. Um, look at it. See where you might fit in. See where you might be used. You know, tech team always needs people. And Brian always tells me people are overwhelmed. But tech team sometimes is just as simple as pushing a space bar. You know, we, but we need them. We need you. So go out there um, and get signed up today. Because when we serve one another, when we serve together, there is a bond and a unity that is holy. And unity is vital to the church. So as we look and celebrate those that build the church through their self-sacrifice and hard work, Paul warns us also, avoid false teachers who destroy the unity of the church. He goes on in verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. He's saying, keep watch. Pay attention. Because people will bring division. As much as it depends on you, live in peace. You know, there are people that always complain, that are never satisfied, and are consistently trying to get others on their side of the fight so they can lead a march against whatever. And so they're trying to create this division. You know, and the problem with that is people who live out their lives that way are so focused on the me and not the we. And, and we, need to, we need to be we people. We're called to unity, and anything contrary to that goal is contrary to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't speak our minds. It doesn't mean we can't voice our concerns. But we do so in a manner that the goal and the focus is unity, not division. We're family. You know, we win together and we lose together. But we do it together. We did a marriage conference a couple of years ago. And, um, and it was Friday... I'll, Friday night, all day Saturday, and, and 
Friday night and Saturday, people could text in questions about marriage and stuff like that. And then we did a um, Q&A panel after lunch on Saturday. And so we were going through some of the questions. And one of the questions, it was really the answer that stuck out to me, but one of the questions somebody asked was this. In a marriage relationship, what is the most important aspect? What is the most important aspect of a, of a marriage relationship? Is it, is it communication or is it trust? And Robert Hamilton said something that just stuck with me. And, and he said this. He said, it's neither. He said, the most important aspect of a marriage relationship is unity. Trust, communication are simple tools for the purpose of unity. That should be the goal. And so serving and working to build the kingdom of God together in unity is the antidote to me. But there's another division, a theological one, one of doctrine that he warns us about. And I just want to point this out. How serious is this warning? Put it this way. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd John, all warn against deceivers and deception. I think he think they're taking this seriously. Deception is one of Satan's most effective tools and one of his greatest weapons. And it usually starts with a slide and not an avalanche. When you see an avalanche coming, you run for safety. A lot of times when you're on that snow or on that ice and there's subtle shifts, you don't feel or sense the danger that is there. And then you get swept away. It's the subtle shift that's the most dangerous. And Paul goes on, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Con artists work on flattery. Con artists work on smooth talk. They appeal to those who are susceptible to delusion. We can all be guilty of that. If somebody comes to you and says, oh my gosh, you look like you lost 15 pounds when you know you lost 20, you're like, keep talking. This sounds good. I want to keep hearing this. And we keep listening because we want to hear. We become deceived because we don't know the Bible. And you don't know the Bible because you don't read the Bible. And this is not new. It's been going on since the garden, the deception, you know. When the serpent said, did God really say that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, that's not what he said. But is it true? And he said, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. So whether it's adding to the scripture or simply contradicting God's word, we must know what it says in order to guard against it. Reading the Bible isn't recommended, it's 
mandatory. You don't read the Bible for inspiration. You don't read the Bible for some fulfilled feeling. And and when those things aren't happening, you put it down. You read the Bible so that you can know and you can understand the person and the character of God. Put it this way, and I apologize to my wife for this illustration of first service, but say that I'm single years ago and I meet some chick in New York. And I meet her, and we spend some time together, go out for dinner, and then I come back to California. And during that time, we kind of retracted, so she's writing me letters. And she's writing me letters every week, and she's telling me about herself, the things that she loves, the thing that she hates, you know, just pouring out her character to me, and who she is, and oh, and every week I run to the mailbox, Another letter. And without opening it, I put it in a drawer. And then I run around going, there's this girl in New York. I am so in love with her. No, I am not. I don't even know her. I'm in love with an idea of her. Whatever idea I have formed in my mind of her, I have no idea who she is. And that is where we can be when it comes to reading or not reading the Bible. We read it so we understand the true character and the true nature of God. And we need to stand firm in that truth. Ephesians 6.14 says, Stand firm. Gird your loins with the truth. Beware. They will teach you things about the faith that are opposite of the doctrine you have been taught. In many circles, you know, and... Let me just say this too. I mean, there's, there's false teachers like you see on TV and I'll pray for you from my prayer tower if you send me a thousand dollars. And they're, you know, they're just obviously shearing the sheep and those are the avalanches. But there are subtleties that creep into even the church when it comes to doctrine that's not scriptural. God is being neutered. God has become a friend my friend. Jesus is my friend. And that's where the focus is. And when the scripture talks about Jesus as a friend, I mean, he's basically saying, you're my friend if you obey me. Jesus is our friend because it also says, what greater friend that would lay down his life for another? But sometimes that gets shifted. And There was somebody that came to the church years ago, you know, probably like four years ago. They came to the church and and they were a believer. I'm a believer. My spouse is not. And so I'm trying to win my spouse over to God so we can be believers together in our marriage. Things aren't going well. And as we're talking, it also came out that this person is having an affair. Okay, how do you justify um, trying to work on your marriage, trying to win your spouse over to Christ, and yet having an affair and calling yourself a Christian? And their answer was, Jesus loves me. He just wants me to be happy. And I'm like, you don't even know the God 
of the Bible. We move things. We shift things. We believe things we want to believe because it makes us feel good. Jesus as our Savior. Yes, he's our Savior. But sometimes that's as far as it goes. And I will say, if Jesus is your your Savior only, he's probably not your Savior. Our views on God's forgiveness has been twisted. In Hebrews 10.26, it says this, If we go on sinning deliberately or willingly after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Sin is not acceptable to God by any means. Throughout Scripture, sin is basically equated to adultery or harlotry. Yes, God's grace is there for you because we are weak and we are fallen. But it's not a license. I mean, think about it. If you went home... Again, sorry for the poor illustrations. You go home. You've had an affair on your wife. And I go home to Nancy. I say, I blew it. I cheated on you. I want your forgiveness. But I need it now because I'm meeting her at 7 and I'm not coming home tonight. That is how we treat God many times. There's no plan. There's no desire To rid the sin that is in my life. I'm living with somebody. We are fornicating. I know what God said about it. I'm just going to ask for forgiveness. And he's just going to bless this. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. And profaning the blood of the covenant. For which you were sanctified. And outraged the Spirit of God. He has made provisions for your sin. Trust me, I believe in grace and mercy. But he does not accept it. And his forgiveness and his mercy is not license. Backing this up with scripture, is Jesus' role as Savior the one that God wants to emphasize in our lives? It seems to me that many people have grown careless in the way that it refers to Jesus And in the titles that is given him, I remember, you know, this crept in so much that I remember years ago, there was bumper stickers all over the place that said, Jesus is my co-pilot. You're co-pilot. You're co-pilot. You're in the wrong seat. (laughs) What emphasis do you think God is trying to get across in Scripture? That Jesus is Savior or that Jesus is Lord? Let's take a look. How many times do you think that the title Savior is even used in the New Testament? 24. 
24 times the word Savior is used in the New Testament. Nine of those referring to God the Father. Fifteen. Fifteen referring to Jesus Christ as Savior. How many times does the New Testament refer to Jesus Christ as Lord? 618 times. 41 times more often than he is referred to as your Savior. Do you think God is trying to emphasize something for us? We have to surrender all to him. We need to be in the habit of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Heresies and false teachings are often based on Scriptures out of context. We need to have the full counsel of God, not cliff notes. I love soundbite theology where you can just in one sentence just make a powerful statement. Wow. But I don't base my theology on soundbite theology. It's kind of like knowing my wife. In reading the scriptures and understanding who God is and what his character is really like, it's like knowing my wife in the sense that when we first met, I didn't know her very well. You're buying flowers, you're stressing out, going to she like roses, carnations, okay, roses, red, pink, I, you know. I know her now. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. And if somebody comes to me and says, your wife did this thing or your wife said this thing, there is a strong gauge inside of me that could determine whether that is true or not of her, of what I know about her. We need to know who God is. He goes on on 19 and says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And we as believers do. We need to be wise and understand what good and innocent is. What God has declared as good and innocent. We also need to know what God has endorsed as being wrong. In Romans 131 it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, those that practice some such things deserve to die. You know, I mean, um, Roger said it in the, in the communion message. Sin equals death. But these people, they not only do it, they not only do the sin, but they give approval. They endorse the sin for others for them to practice. And I'll tell you, this becomes difficult as Christians because it can become confusing. We are called to stand against culture, which could be one of the biggest deceivers because of brainwashing us. It's, it's shaping our minds. Um, and so it can be confusing because we're called to stand against it, but we're also called to be caring and loving and compassionate. Culture and public opinion can be one of the biggest tools of deception. And it sets new norms. I remember um, Madonna at the height of her career and she used to do some really racy stuff. And I remember in an interview sometime, somebody asked her, how do you get away with doing so much? And she said, well, what you do is, when the standard is here, I come out, I do something outrageous, and everybody screams and yells and shouts. And so I back it off just a bit, and everybody's happy, 
and we just shifted the standard. It happens to you guys all the time. Think about it. When gas was $2.90 a gallon, and it's creeping up, and it hits $3.45, and you're like, oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end, $3. Who can afford $3.45 for gas? And then it climbs all the way up to 5 bucks, and comes back down to $3.45, and you're like, woohoo! <laughs> Can't believe it. You got to go to that gas station. It's $3.45. New norms. We accept it. We have to guard against allowing ourselves to be corrupted with culture, corrupted with the way things are. So we need to stand firm. We have to know what the truth is. We need to stand firm in the truth, but we also need to speak the truth in love. One last illustration. There's a woman, and she lives in the middle of nowhere. She's a widow. No food to put on the table. And she takes her two young boys and says, I want you to go to the lake. Grab your fishing poles. Catch us some fish so we have something for dinner. And they're hungry. And the kids go down to the lake. And they start setting camp. And they kick over a rock. And a snake comes out. And he grabs his fishing pole and he beats the snake to death. And then they get, whoo! And so he runs over and knocks over a rather rock. And there goes a snake. And he beats the snake to death. And the boys are running around, tipping over rocks, killing snakes. And they're having a great time killing all the snakes. And then they go, whoo! It's getting dark. We better get home. And so they come home and the mom greets them at the door. And they're empty-handed. And she says, where's the fish? And the kids are like, Mom, you won't believe it. There were snakes all over. We were killing all these snakes. And she goes, I didn't send you to kill snakes. I sent you to catch fish. Stand firm. It's not our purpose on this earth to point out evil, to shout it down, and to be the voice of against everything. But we do need to stand firm in what is really true. We need to bring the gospel because that's the hope. We have the words of life to the dying. And you don't when somebody's dying, you don't beat a dead horse. You don't go into their room and tell them everything they did wrong. You bring hope, compassion, comfort, words of life. That's the gospel. And he finishes in verse 20 saying, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God's going to win this. He's got this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We should be wise to what is good and we should be innocent to what is evil. And I want to leave you with a couple of things today. And that is, again, I know this is redundant. We need to stand firm in the faith. We need to do it in a loving but an uncompromising way. Because 
If the church looks too much like culture, why would culture turn to the church? You know, we try too much to kind of try to assimilate so we don't look different. I don't want to offend people. I, you know, I don't want to be thought of as kind of the outsider. No, that's not what God called us to. He called us to be different. We need to stand for what is right. We have to be different from culture if we're going to attract culture in the sense that when they're in that place that they know they need something more than they have, turning to something different. We have to work together. We have to strive for unity. And so I want to just charge you guys. Go out in the courtyard today. Get on board with what God is calling us to do here within the local church. We're doing it for the purpose of bringing hope and changing lives and making God known and worshipped to an entire world and generation. We just sent our missionaries out to the, one of the farthest reaches of the world. So thank you guys. God bless.